today the title of my message is don't kill the messenger don't kill the messenger after king solomon's reign god comes to solomon he makes an incredible promise to solomon and solomon's promise is contingent upon his obedience to the command of god unfortunately Solomon slowly drifts away from everything that God has told him to do. And so finally God had enough and he's stripping the kingdom away from Solomon. And while Solomon is still alive, God sends a prophet to a man named Jeroboam. And he says, he basically uses his prophet to make the same, nearly the same type of offer that he made to his servant, David. We all know about how gracious God was to David and the promise that he made to David that he would always have somebody on the throne. And so this prophet comes and he has a new cloak and he comes to Jeroboam. Jeroboam is somebody that King Solomon had recognized, had a gift on his life and Solomon had promoted Jeroboam. But in this prophet came to him and he says, he tore his cloak into 12 pieces and he says, he gives him 10. He says, God is going to give you reign over all of this and he's going to establish a dynasty through you if you obey. He says, he's only going to leave these two pieces on account of David because he's got to keep his word to David, but God is going to do something special in your life. And so Jeroboam receives this incredible word. The Bible's so funny because um, it says that he was alone with this prophet when he gets this word, but somehow Solomon hears about it and Solomon tries to kill him. But Jeroboam escapes into safety and Jeroboam hides out until God or until Solomon passes away. Jeroboam rises and he gets into power as the word of the Lord was spoken to him. And he's over these 10, these 10 different provinces. And Rehoboam is reigning over just the two in Jerusalem. And the Bible says that Jeroboam had this power, but there was one little thing that was an issue. Society at this time ran a lot differently than it does now. It wasn't based upon states and organized government like it is now. In this time, society was primarily based on rituals and religion. Customs and religion war were the keys to society. And one of the customs of God's people was to worship in Jerusalem. Was to worship in Jerusalem. Jerusalem happened to be one of the only places that God didn't give Jeroboam the power over. So the people as custom would go to Jerusalem to worship. But Jeroboam early in his reign didn't like this because he felt that if the people were to leave his province and go worship God the way they had always worshiped God, that he would lose control. And I have a question for you today. If God gives you power Will you give him control? Jeroboam was given the power, but because he didn't feel like he had control, he knew God gave him this great thing, but it's like God gave him this great thing, but didn't give him control over it. I don't know if anybody's felt like that, but if you've had kids, you probably have where I've got power, but I feel like I have no control. (laughs) God, what are you doing? And the often most everything that God gives us in this life, he gives us in such a way that he gives us some semblance of power. But ultimately, we know that we have to rely and trust in him. 
Jeroboam failed to do this, and Jeroboam set up bulls, very similar to what happened to the people when they came out of Egypt and Moses was gone to the mountain. He set up places of worship, and he disobeyed the customs that God had laid out in his word for how to worship. He strayed away from all of the rules and the regulations of how to properly worship and honor God. And because he failed to repent in this, God sends a man of God from Judah, the Bible says. It never says his name. It specifically calls him a man of God from Judah. And he sends this man of God from Judah to tell Jeroboam like it is. And he says, I'm speaking to this altar where you're worshiping. He says, this altar is going to be broken down and ashes will spill out of it. And Later on, there's going to be a king from the line of David that's going to come and it's going to sacrifice all of the false prophets that are serving the gods on this altar. And he's going to sacrifice them right there. And he's going to strip this kingdom back from you. This very thing that God gave you that you wouldn't give him control over, he's going to take it back from you and he's going to give it back to the line of David. Well, Jeroboam doesn't like the sound of this. And so the Bible says he stretches out his hand and says, seize him. But as he stretches his hand out, the Bible says his hand withers and he can't pull it back. And he says, in that moment, Jeroboam says to the man of God from Judah, would you please pray that God would restore my hand? And the Bible says that the man of God from Judah prayed and all of a sudden Jeroboam had movement back in his hand. And he says, he marvels at this, and he says, this is incredible. I want you to come eat and drink with me. I want to give you a reward. And this is where we'll jump into our first passage of Scripture. I'm going to do some reading, and I'm going to do it quickly. We're going to jump into 1 Kings chapter 13, verses 8 through 26. 1 Kings chapter 13, verses 8 through 26. But the man of God answered the king, even if you were to give me half your possessions, I would not go with you, nor would I eat bread or drink water here. For I was commanded by the word of the Lord, you must not eat bread or drink water or return by the way you came. So he took another road and did not return by the way he came to Bethel. Now there was a certain old prophet living in Bethel whose sons came and told him all that the man of God had done there that day. They also told their father what he said to the king. Their father asked them, which way did he go? And his son showed him which road the man of God from Judah had taken. So he said to his son, saddle the donkey for me. When they had saddled the donkey for him, he mounted and rode after the man of God. He found sitting under an oak tree and asked, are you the man of God who came from Judah? I am, he replied. So the prophet said to him, come home and eat with me. The man of God said, I cannot turn back and go with you, nor can I eat bread or drink water with you in this place. I have been told by the word of the Lord, you must not eat bread or drink water there or return by the way you came. But the old prophet answered, I too am a prophet as you are. And an angel said to me by the word of the Lord, bring him back with you to your house so that he may eat bread and drink water. But he was lying to him. So the man of God returned with him and ate and drank in his house while they were sitting at the table. Let me just say this. The Bible is stranger than fiction. 
This is crazy. And I know it's true because no person could make this up. The prophet who just lied to the man of God, who just got done telling the truth to the king. While they were sitting at the table, the word of the Lord came to the old prophet who had brought him back. He cried out to the man of God who had come from Judah. This is what the Lord says. You have defied the word of the Lord and not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. You came back and ate bread and drank water in the place where he told you not to eat or drink. Therefore, your body will not be buried in the tomb of your ancestors. When the man of God had finished eating and drinking, the prophet who had brought him back saddled his donkey for him. As he was on his way, a lion met him on the road. Just pause right there. A lion met him? This is like an assassin movie, except it's through an alarm. A lion met him on the road and killed him. And his body was left lying on the road with both the donkey and the lion standing beside it. Some people who passed by saw the body lying there with the lion standing beside the body. And they went and reported it in the city where the old prophet lived. When the prophet who had brought him back from his journey heard of it, he said, it is the man of God who defied the word of the Lord. The Lord has given him over to the lion, which has mauled him and killed him as the word of the Lord had warned him. The first thing I want to point out here, I have three points that I would like to make and then some stuff I want to kind of dive into. But the first thing I want to point out here is if you're taking notes, God can use anyone and desires to use me now. The reason I want to point this out is because sometimes in scripture we read about people who do certain things and because we feel like God has given them a special or supernatural power, it's easy for us to disconnect ourselves with the outcome of whatever happens in their life. In this instance, this man of God from Judah Seemed to operate in great power. This guy's hand shriveled up. He prays and God restores his hand. And uh, also it talks about in the scripture, the altar indeed did split open and the ashes came out. And so we see this man of God from Judah operating in such power. And so it'll be easy for us to disconnect ourselves or not be able to relate to this man because we think we have not, you know, because we have not been used in this way that this somehow separates us from this man. But I want to tell you that the word man of God from Judah literally in the Hebrew is Adam, which means humankind or human being. So we can literally read this, that God used anyone from Judah. God used anybody, male or female, from Judah. And he sent a word with that person. He sent a messenger. And we know specifically that this was a hymn because it refers to his gender in the text. But God can use anyone. The word Adam there, Adam, first man, humankind, human being. And so we have to realize that God can use anybody and desires to use me now. This wasn't just a full-time prophet or minister or somebody God had only given specific abilities to. This was any of us. This was all of us. And we have to make sure that resonates with us because if we don't, we won't allow the experience of this man to resonate in our hearts and receive what God is trying to tell us. 
Before we move forward, it's important to note something about Jeroboam, who God was speaking to in this moment. Over and over again in 1 Kings and 2 Kings, there is a phrase that an evil king failed and he caused them to go into the way of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, and caused Israel to commit great sin. And I've seen this over and over again through my life and my subconscious, I never really focused on this. I just assumed, okay, this was a real bad dude. So much so that first and second Kings references Jeroboam and what he did over 20 times in first and second Kings, the sin that Jeroboam caused Israel to commit, the sin that Jeroboam caused Israel to commit, this King failed and he did like Jeroboam. And I was thinking, man, Jeroboam must've been like the like the most professional of the evil sinners. Like, because in my carnal nature, I'm like, okay, the Bible is clearly telling us that he was the baddest of the bad. But then, no, if you go to 1 Kings 16, you'll find out that the Bible actually gave, you know, because it knows that humans want titles for like the baddest person alive. So it actually gives the title to Ahab. It says there Ahab was, had done more evil in the sight of God than anybody who came before him. That would include Jeroboam. So it made me step back and say, why would Scripture keep pointing over and over again to the sin of Jeroboam if he wasn't even the best at sinning? Like, why is that? It's because Scripture is taking me a long time to understand this, but the more I read it, Scripture is not trying to give us a moral code to live by. Scripture, we are so blessed In this new covenant, scripture is giving us insight into the thoughts, motives, and the the why of why people make their decisions so that we can learn that what's going on in their heart that causes them to go off course is very often things that are going on in our heart. And scripture gives us insight into the way they think and so that we can get a different spirit. Like Pastor Robbie talked about last week, he wants to give us a different spirit, a different mindset so that we do not pursue the same things that caused Jeroboam to pursue. That we wouldn't ask God for power but not still give him control of our life. The second point I want to make is that the word, of, uh, the word of God has to become the voice in our life. The word of God has to become the voice. Some of you may have heard this terrible, tragic story that happened um, it's just maybe a month or so ago. It hasn't been very long, but it was a mom out in Arizona, and she received the worst phone call that any parent could ever receive. She received a ransom call. She has a young daughter. This is a true story. She's out in Arizona. She has a young daughter, and she hears this man says, I've got your daughter, and I am demanding that you give me X amount of money. And she hears her daughter screaming in the background, and all of a sudden, she goes frantic like any parent would. She doesn't know what to do. She's like, I don't have this kind of money, so the man actually lowers the money. So she's around people. She's freaking out. She's telling them what is going on. And in the meantime, while she's talking to this guy, somebody calls and verifies her, her daughter was actually on a ski trip and her daughter's like mom I'm I'm fine why is my mom freaking out I'm okay so she hangs up with this person she starts going off on her daughter like this is not funny you I thought you were going to die but now I'm going to kill you actually so like this is not a prank that you can play on me this isn't okay at all and she, the daughter's like mom I've been on this trip I don't have a clue I promise I don't know what you're talking about And so they call the police and then they figure out what had happened what they had found out that happened is that 
through social media, this girl's talking. Now with artificial intelligence, these crooks took three seconds of her voice and was able to mimic a real-life hostage situation through artificial intelligence. And of all people in the whole world that would recognize this little girl's voice, you would have thought it would have been mom. But with artificial intelligence, with just a little snippet, just about three seconds, they can make you say anything they want you to say through artificial intelligence. And so here I say that the word of God has to become the voice in your life because this makes me think of John chapter 10. I believe it's verse 27. Jesus says, my sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. This is so important because just like this woman that received this prank call with artificial intelligence, there is an enemy that is after your life who is going to be calling on you and is going to try to be going to say things to you that is not what God said. And the devil is more sophisticated than this crook because this crook called to demand things from this lady. But when the enemy calls, he actually calls to offer you something. Jesus went into the wilderness and the devil tempted the Lord and he didn't tempt him by trying to take from him. He tempted by trying to offer him something. And just like this, this, this crook was able to take just a snippet and manipulate this woman. The enemy in the same way tried to take a snippet of God's word and said, it is written, Jesus, if you throw yourself off this ledge, the angels will come catch you. And Jesus doesn't say you're lying. It doesn't say that. No, the sophistication was the enemy was telling the truth about the portion of scripture he had read. It was only because Jesus was able to say it is also written that he didn't get himself in trouble. He knew the voice of God and he knew it in its totality. So much so that he wasn't able to be duped to take something that looked like what God was offering, but really was stones. He wasn't tempted to take the bread and find out later that it was stones. The enemy has nothing to offer you, but he will make an offer and it will sound enticing. And he may even use the voice of an old prophet to get you off course and make you question like the very first sin that we see in scripture. Did God say? And my assignment more than anything else to you today is to challenge each and every one of us to, that the scripture, that fellowship with God, fellowship with his word is non-negotiable for the life of the believer. You've got to know it. You've got to treasure it. You've got to follow him and follow him alone. So much so that when an imitation comes, you can say, it is also said. It is also said. It's also important to note that the person who lied was somebody that God had used before and then used again after. So that means that people who are here or that will deceive you or pull you off course don't always come around with horns. Like, actually, they never do. The Bible says even Jesus was ready for this with his friend Peter. 
Peter would be used to preach one of the greatest messages in the history of the world. And 3,000 people at once would come to know Jesus. But at one point, that same vessel was a human vessel. And he was speaking on behalf of the devil by trying to get Jesus to not die on the cross. We've got to recognize and be so close to Jesus that even people that we love dearly, we filter everything they say through the knowledge of the word of God. Here's what's important. This man of God from Judah had a word that God gave him and a prophet came to give another word. So here's something that we can do to test the word. God will always use a prophet to confirm a word in your life. If you've been in fellowship with God, he's not going to send anybody to speak in contrast to what he's already been speaking to you. He's going to speak in confirmation or sometimes even revelation, which means he exceeds or blows your mind, but he's never going to come and speak the exact opposite of the word he has put on your heart. What we see in scripture is when God changes a word, he changes it based on faith or lack thereof. For example, Hezekiah gets a word from the prophet Isaiah. You're sick and you're going to die. That was the word from God. Isaiah leaves. Hezekiah prays. And Hezekiah's prayer of faith caused God to say, you know what? Because you prayed, I'm going to change your situation around. But in this situation, we know that the prophet wasn't praying for bread or for water. Like, God, I'm hungry. Could you please change the word around? No, 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 no. There was no prayer. There was no nothing. Sometimes the prophet simply caters to what he knows you want. Sometimes there are people who say they are operating for God. And all they want to give you is what they know you want. I know you're hungry. You've been on the road. This is the only instance in all of scripture where God sends a man on a journey and doesn't let him eat the entire time. I know what you want. Come and get it. Here's the thing. Because all of us, our hearts can go out to this man. But this is the reality of the situation. And I want to encourage you in this because this is a challenging, but I want to encourage you. Ignorance produces the same results as disobedience. Part of us can be like, but he didn't know. I mean, the old prophet was a man of God at some point. He didn't know, but this man of God from Judah's ignorance produced the same results as if he just defied God. It killed him. And as a believer, we have to realize that we can only justify being ignorant to the things of God for so long. There has to come a point of maturity. One of my favorite sins growing up. It's a weird thing to say, but I'm just telling y'all how it is. One of my favorite sins growing up was getting close to getting home and fake sleeping. Why would I fake sleep? Because if I was asleep, my parents would carry me to my bed. I didn't even have to get up out that car. It was my favorite thing. And my kids try it. I'm like, you don't even know I invented that, fam. Like, that's not going to work. Like, that's I'm the best ever at that. Like, I have the spiritual gift of fake sleep. Like, I can fake sleep with the best of them. 
And so I loved doing that because when I was young, I knew how to fake sleep. And my mom or my dad would get me out the car and they would put me in my bed. I would get where I wanted to go and I didn't have to do hardly anything for it. But how many of you know that as I mature, when my wife drives home and I'm in the car, if I <laughs> fake sleep now, my wife would be like, babe, babe, get up. Okay, I'm going to crack the window for you, let you sit in this garage, but I'm not carrying you <laughs> to your bed. It may have worked on your mama and may have worked on your daddy, but it ain't working on me. Even if I wanted to, she couldn't carry me to the bed. What am I saying is that we as believers think that the same level of maturity when we first confessed our faith in God was enough to get us where we want to go now, but that was enough to save us and, and, to, and for God to come into our heart. But that saving faith isn't the same type of faith that I need in the storm right now. God asked me to mature in my faith, and one, some of us are in this room, and we go to church for years and years, and we real, we're trying to figure out why hasn't things changed? changed in my life? Why don't I feel like I'm effective or moving forward in God? And may I ask, is your level of faith the same as when you first got saved? Is it the same? Too many of us church-going, God-loving Christians are frustrated because that same faith we expressed in Jesus a long time ago doesn't seem to be productive or moving me along anymore. So point number three, I've got to stay in the faith cycle. I've got to stay in the faith cycle. See, there's a cycle of faith. We get in a cycle of doing our own thing and seeking our own desires, and it's so hard to break out, but there is a cycle of faith. Second Peter chapter 1, verses 4 through 9 says this, Through these, and these is referencing the last verse, God's glory and excellence. Through God's glory and excellence, he has given us every great and precious promise, so that through them, you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. For this reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge and to knowledge self-control and to self-control perseverance and to perseverance godliness and to godliness mutual affection and to mutual affection love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But whoever does not have them is nearsighted and blind, forgetting that they have been cleansed from their past sin. Wow, there's so much here. So I just want to go through and unpack this, uh, unpack this with you. There's kind of seven things here that I want to unpack. And um, yeah, 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 let's look clearly at what God is asking us to add. First, I believe there's a divine order in this context. I believe some portions of scripture, there's an order that if we break it down, it's really beneficial. First, the scripture is asking us to add goodness. If you look at the word in the original language, goodness actually speaks to a standard. The standard in the root word actually speaks to excellence. So the first thing we must do is set a standard of excellence in our life. The pursuit of excellence does not guarantee perfection. It means that if I fall short of the standard, I repent and keep pursuing the standard set by God and his word. I do not attempt to change the standard to honor my strengths and cater to my weaknesses. So as a believer, I have to first thing to start myself off in this faith cycle so that I can be productive for the Lord and not just show up and go to church, but that I can walk in the power of God. I have to keep the standard of excellence where God said it. It's his word. It's non-negotiable, period. 
period. Second thing that we see here, it says knowledge. This is pointing to an understanding of the truth of God and the character of God. So as I set the standard, God says, you're going to begin to know who I am more, not just what I say, but who I am. This is key because John 10, like we read, my sheep know my voice. There is an intimacy there is an intimacy. This, this is the beautiful thing about this. This doesn't require me to know everything about God or to even understand everything he's telling me. But I understand his voice and what it sounds like when he talks. And so when somebody comes and says something different, I'm like, oh, that doesn't sound like God. I may not understand everything you're saying. You may be smarter than me. Old prophet, you may have a degree and you may have been prophesying for years and for years. But on this moment, I can tell you that doesn't sound like my dad. So God wants to give you a relationship. You set the standard. Then he wants to give you an intimacy with him that you will not mistake his voice. The third thing the scripture is telling us to add to our faith in the cycle is self-control. And I love this because this means that I've set the unchangeable standard for my life and I'm pursuing an understanding of God. So automatically with this, his spirit comes and it gives me the ability to deny my flesh and to maintain the standard of his word. We can only have self-control through the spirit. It is a fruit of the spirit of God. The fourth thing is perseverance. I love this because it's very simple and short, but it simply points to what Paul mentioned when he said, do not grow weary in well-doing. It means to stand firm. So I set the standard. I begin to be intimate with God. I understand him more. His spirit comes in and gives me the ability to control myself, deny my flesh, and to follow him. So now, fourth is perseverance. I make the decision. Am I going to just keep standing firm and doing this? Because ultimately it all comes down to a decision we make. The Bible's clear. We have the power from the spirit of God to live a godly life. Now will we maintain perseverance and stand, keep making the right decision over and over and over again, even when it gets tiring doing the right thing over and over again, even when you find out that your homies know how to do some shady stuff on their taxes and get some extra money. But will I keep doing the same thing over and over? God's given me power. Will I give him control? Will I keep maintaining the standard in every area of my life? Or will I just apply the standard on Sunday when I go to church or first Wednesdays when I go to church or Easter or whenever I decide to show up at church or a church service or I'm around church people? But will I maintain the standard that he set? Will I persevere in my life even when I'm tired? of doing the right thing will I keep doing the right thing because God said so fifth thing godliness godliness very simple if I make the decision to keep doing what God says I will become more like God and if that sounds weird to anybody remember how Jesus tells us to address God our father it only is natural that when you obey your parents and you keep doing what they say What's one of the best compliments you get if you were blessed to have a parent that you love is that you remind me of your mother. You remind me of your father. And that's what the scripture is telling us, that if I make the decision to persevere and stand firm in God's word, that I will become more like my heavenly father. And I love the next part because it's the measuring stick of how I know if I'm becoming more like God or not. It says mutual affection. What is mutual affection? In the original language Hebrew, it's Philadelphia. 
brotherly love. How do I know I'm more like God? It's not looking back to see what I've learned in my head. I know I'm more like God because I can love these crazy people the way God loves these crazy people. I love his word. There's an order to it. There's an order to it. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your strength. And the second commandment is just as important. Love your neighbor as yourself. My measuring stick for how well I am pursuing God is how well I am loving my brothers. And the seventh one, the last one here is, as I've done all of these things, it says love. But the Greek word here is agape, which means godly love. Godly love. I get the keys to come up here and I'll get you all to stand. I've got to close. Agape love. So as I do all of this, as my, as my godliness helps me love my brother well, God says, as a result, I will send you love that only can come from heaven. Agape love. This is the cycle that helps us stay in faith and stay productive. And I love this because you can be in here and if you haven't been in the cycle, you may feel like dirty. But I love Second Peter because it says, verse 9, it says, whoever does not have these things added to their life is nearsighted blind and they forget that they have been cleansed from their past sin. It's not that you haven't been cleansed. It's just hard to remember when you're not holding on to the things of God. So I pray today that this is a cycle that you will enter into. God knows humanity. He knows that things work in seasons and that we operate in this mentality. And so my charge and my prayer to you is that you would stay in this cycle. I called this message, Don't Kill the Messenger. And this messenger comes to a a sad end. But one thing that I wanted to make sure I echoed because I felt really sad. And as I mature, I can see scripture a little differently. And I see that not everybody who, who dies by God's hand is smitten and condemned into hell. That's what I used to think growing up. I'm like, man, if God got to kill you, you must be evil. No. Sometimes it's a statement about the effectiveness and the seriousness of what he's called you to do. But we have to notice that this messenger's punishment was that he wouldn't be buried in his homeland. It doesn't mean that God didn't care for this man or love him. And there is so much great symbolism in this story, and I pray that you go and you take time to research it all, but I want you to know that even though this prophet died, we can't kill the one that it represents. A greater prophet was going to be coming. And just like this man of God, he would deliver the right words but the difference is he would obey them fully. Scripture teaches us that Jesus learned obedience. Obedience is going to be the key to everything. Obedience to what his word says. And like I said earlier, ignorance cannot be an excuse. I have got to know what God is speaking to me in every season. And I've got to recognize his voice. The Bible says there was a lion that killed him. And it was a miracle because the lion didn't try to kill the donkey and it, eat, it didn't eat away at the man. This represents the lion of the tribe of Judah. Jesus is coming. But I was reading this and I was like, but Jesus, you are a lion and a lamb, not a lion and a donkey. So I don't even understand what this donkey's doing here. 
And he says, the prophet didn't get to make it back to his mission because donkeys represent one of two things. They're rather representing being stubborn, disobedient, or they were messengers of peace where kings rode on. And this man unfortunately did not obey. This man fortunately didn't fulfill the great command of God. But Jesus says, the lamb is that I'm going to be the sacrifice. That dead man's body's laying there. I also am going to lay my body down. And the Bible went on to say that that man of God from Judah was buried in the prophet's tomb, a new tomb that he didn't get to use. He buried him there. And Jesus too would also borrow a tomb. But it wasn't because of his disobedience. Jesus borrowed the tomb because his obedience would give him the power to get up from the grave. And the greatest messenger sent us his spirit to walk the way he walked and keep the message alive. I'm going to tell you this story for those of you who may be in the room and feeling like, I want to profess my faith in God. I'm just nervous because there's so much I don't know. I want to encourage you in this. One of the greatest things that's ever happened in my life is uh, being a husband and being a father. And all, both of those things are incredibly challenging and both of those things are most rewarding things ever. Um, I have a little girl, she's two, and when she was uh, about 13 or 14 months old, one night I was putting, I just got done putting all her siblings to bed. I was, I was pretty worn out this night and she wanted more milk. And I'm like, babe, you've already had milk. But she was at that point where I'm like, the other siblings are asleep, I don't wanna wake them up. So I said, I'd never tried this before. I said, stay here. I put her in her bed. I said, stay here. I promise I'll be right back. Please, like, I know that you want to cry and scream because you can't put her down. She was crying and scream every time till she got what she wanted. But this time she was quiet. So I go downstairs and I'm about to make her some milk and I see my children's folders laying out for school. And I start messing with their folders and doing, uh, putting their stuff together for school the next day. And then I get an alert on my phone about something about sports. And then I'm scrolling through and about 10 minutes had passed and God was like, your girl? And I'm like, I was like, oh my gosh. And I ran, I poured that milk so fast and I sprinted up to the room because I was like, and I listened, I'm like, I can't believe she's not screaming. And I remember I went in the room and like her face was kind of like sad. And then she seen me and she perks up. She goes, come back, you come back. And in that moment, it, it dawned on me. I said all of these words to her to try to calm her down. In church, I know that she couldn't have understood half of it, but there was something about my voice that provided security. There was something about my voice where she could sense that no matter what I was saying, I would come back for her and that I was looking out for her even when I wasn't in front of her, that I was doing something for her. And I came to tell some people in here who are not so sure about their level of faith and sure about what, what God is doing in their life. I'm here to say, dive into his word. And even when you don't understand it, he's going to provide his spirit that's going to help you feel secure in what he's calling you to do in your life, even before you to understand it all his spirit will wrap his arms around you and say I got you come to me keep coming keep understanding so with every head bowed in this place we say father God thank you for your love we feel in here if you're in here and for the first time or maybe you want to come back to God you want to lift your hand and say Lord I 
I want to pursue your word. I don't know everything about it, but I want to come back to you. If that's you, you can just wave at me and say, I want to pursue. I want to follow God like I never have before. I want to trust in the Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Church, let's pray with those who have lifted their hands. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you will trust me with the power of your word. I give you control of my life. I trust you. Thank you for trusting me. And thank you for being the messenger that they couldn't kill. I give you my life today. Thank you for giving me your life. It's in your name I pray. Amen and amen. Church, um, there will be people around here at the altar. If you made that decision, they'll put a number up on the screen so that we can communicate with you if you want to text that. But there's also people here that want to just pray with you and agree with whatever's going on in your life. Thank you so much. God bless you all. We'll see you next week.